You're listening to a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. We hope you'll find it to be spiritually edifying. Our scripture reading this morning is taken from the book of the Apostle Luke, chapter 15, verses 1 to 10. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear him. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Then Jesus told them this parable, Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Does he not leave the ninety and nine in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? And when he finds it, he joyfully puts on his shoulders and goes home. Then he calls his friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me. I have found my lost sheep. I tell you that in the same way there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine righteous persons who do not need to repent. Or suppose a woman has ten silver coins and loses one. Does she not light a lamp, sweep the house, and search carefully until she finds it? And when she finds it, she calls her friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me, I have found my lost coin. In the same way, I tell you, there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Our text this morning is taken from Luke chapter 15, the verses 11 to 32. Here we continue on in this chapter under the heading of the parable of the lost son. Jesus continued, And there was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had and set off for a distant country and there squandered his wealth in wild living. And after he had spent everything there, there was a severe famine in the whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his fields to feed pigs, and he longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired men have food to spare, and here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired men. So he got up and went to his father. And while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son. He threw his arms around him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Bring a ring and put it on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. 
Meanwhile, the older son, excuse me, meanwhile, the older son was in the field. And while he, while he, when he came near the house, he near, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has come back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him, but he answered his father, Look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders, yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. And when this son of yours, who has squandered your property with prostitutes, comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. My son, the father said, you're always with me, and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad, because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, in our text this morning, we encounter a dysfunctional family. It vividly displays the messiness of a world vandalized by sin. At the same time, it also points us to a gracious God who provides a way out and a way forward. It's probably the most well-known parable. You probably know it as the parable of the prodigal son. Contrary to what many think, prodigal does not mean lost. Rather, it means extravagant or wasteful. Then it's the prodigal, then it's the parable of the son who blew his inheritance on wasteful living. Recently, Presbyterian pastor and author Tim Keller came out with a book on this parable, and he called it the parable of the prodigal God. It's a parable about a God who extravagantly lavishes his children with his blessings. In our NIV Bibles, it's called the parable of the lost son. There's something of worth in all of these different titles. But all of them miss the fact that there is more than one lost son in this parable. We also need to account for the fact that this parable is also here to teach us something about God. There's something here about us, about the two brothers, but most important element in this parable is the Father. With the parable of the lost son, Jesus reveals the fatherly heart of God. We'll consider how that revelation unfolds in the request of the younger lost son, the riotous living of the younger lost son, the return of the younger lost son, and the reaction of the older lost son. After telling two parables about things that had been lost, a sheep and a coin, our Lord Jesus proceeded to tell one more, and this was the one to bring it all home. He began by saying there was a man with two sons. Perhaps a Jewish audience would hear that and immediately think of a well-known man from the Old Testament who had two sons. There was Isaac with Jacob and Esau. But that follows but what follows departs from that story in some significant ways. For instance, Jacob tricked Isaac into giving him the birthright, the share due to Esau. 
the younger son of Jesus' story comes and demands his share of the estate from his father. At any rate, the father in Jesus' story acquiesces and divides his property between his two sons. This is the first scene in the parable, and we need to pause here for a moment and reflect on it. It was unusual for a son to request inheritance before his father even died. In fact, it would be insulting to make such a request. It would be like saying, Dad, you've lived too long, and I don't know how much longer you're going to live. I wish you would die more quickly, but if you planned on sticking around, please give me my inheritance right now. Obviously, the son valued his father's wealth more than he valued his father. Brothers and sisters, we do need to comment on how sinful this is. Do we need to even say that this reflects a terrible breakdown in a family relationship? When children value their parents' goods and money more than they value their parents, that's a disturbing reflection of the sinfulness of a dysfunctional and broken world. But loved ones, then look at what the father does in this parable. The father could have said, Sorry, son, you're going to have to wait for my funeral. Right now, you're going to start loving for me. Instead, the father acquiesces and lets the son go his way. He realizes he can't force his son to love him. But the best thing to do is to grant his request and see what happens. We have to be careful that we don't read too much into all the details of this parable. But we do see here a picture of God in his wisdom. We may desire things that are not good for us. In his wisdom, God may give them to us and let us go our way. He does that so that in due time, we will lose our taste for sin and return to him. This younger son gets his share of the inheritance, and not long after, he severs his relationship with his father completely by going off to a far country. Enough of living with dad. I'm going to go off and do my own thing and live a life by my terms and do what is right in my own eyes. And that's exactly what he did. In that faraway country, he blew it all. He spent his money on wild, riotous, riotous living. Later on in the parable, the older brother mentions spending all his, the money on prostitutes. This may just be sour grapes, but it's quite likely that this riotous, debauched lifestyle included sexual immorality. Here was this child of the covenant living among the Gentiles, like the Gentiles. And God had said, Be holy as I am holy. And yet he says, Whatever, forget that. He spent everything on this immoral lifestyle, and then suddenly a famine hits. It's important to understand that in the Bible, famine just doesn't happen by chance. In the Old Testament, in the end of Deuteronomy, God promised that famines would be his rod to chastise and discipline his covenant people. Famines come to wake people up. This famine in Jesus' parable comes only after everything has been spent on an immoral life. Nothing is left. The famine causes this formerly wealthy young man to plunge into desperate poverty. 
He thought he was rich and that nobody could stop him. His next step was to force himself on a local farmer. The farmer gave him one of the least desirable jobs, tending the pigs. A Jewish Jewish audience would have revolted. Pigs, of course, are unclean animals, according to the ceremonial laws of the Old Testament. Jews wouldn't have anything to do with them. But now here's his younger son in the pigsty with the pigs. And he sees the pods that the pigs are eating, and he craves them. Those pods would likely have been the seed cases of carob or locust trees. There's not a lot of nutrition in such food. It was food for the animals and food for desperately poor people. In fact, there was an old saying that when the Israelites are reduced to eating carob pods, then they repent. That's the food that the younger son wanted at that moment. But there was nothing. There was no one to feed him. That line at the end of verse 16 makes us think. The younger son is all by himself. Totally lost. Starving. Possibly on the road to death. He has no one. His father isn't there. His father didn't come looking for him. But let him go down this road to find out for himself that the proverb is true. The way of the unfaithful is hard. Proverbs 13, verse 15. And that harsh discipline is for him who forsakes the way, and he who hates correction will die. Proverbs 15, verse 10. His father had abandoned him so that he might learn by hard experience, that he might learn from his foolishness. And from what we read and Here in verse 17, we know that it works. He comes to himself. He's brought to his senses, and he's thinking straight again. He thinks about his father's hired day laborers. They're the lowest of the men who would be working for his father. They only work on a day-to-day basis, but yet his father would still provide adequate food for them. Meanwhile, he thinks, Here I am in this far country in the pigsty starving to death. What am I doing? Then he comes up with a plan. He's going to go back and humble himself before his father. He'll acknowledge his sin against his father and against God. He'll make it clear that he realizes that he's not worthy to be a son in that family and that he'll just ask to be made like one of the day laborers. At least that way he'll have enough food and he won't starve to death. He knows what he needs and knows where to get it. He knows something of his father's generosity. The thought doesn't enter his mind that it's likely his father will send him away in anger. He knows that his father isn't like that. He comes in confession and humility, making no excuses. His father will probably accept him. And that's the way his father is. Loved ones, that's the way our God is. It's not just a probability, but a certainty that when we approach God in humility and with acknowledgement of our sins and weaknesses, he will never turn us away. When we come depending on his mercy in Christ alone, we can be sure that God's fatherly heart will be turned towards us. The younger son made his plan, and he then began to carry through on it. 
He got up out of the pigsty and traveled a long distance to his father, believing that his father would at least receive him as a hired servant. The younger son is returning. His father sees him from a distance, and his heart melts with joy for his son. This joy can be restrained by proper decency and cultural expectation. No one expects a man of this stature to run for anything, but for his son he runs. Why does he run? Because he loves his son. He runs all the way to meet his dearly loved son and gives him a big hug and kisses him. This is the day he has been waiting for. This is the day that all his hopes and expectations for that younger son have come to fruition. Before a word can be spoken, the son begins to say what he had planned. Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. He doesn't blame anybody but himself. But before he can continue with his little speech, his father is already given directions to his servants. The confession is appropriate, but forget about what about being my son. I won't hear anything about that. Servants, get to work. We have a party to start. Bring my robe, you know, the best one. Get out the ring and put the sandals on this man's feet. Get the fatted calf, you know, the one that we save for the most special occasions, and kill it and get the barbecue going. It's time to celebrate. I thought my son was dead, and now he's here, alive. He was lost, but now he's found. And so the celebration started, an unparalleled celebration. What does this picture? To answer that, we have to go back to the beginning of chapter 15. The Lord Jesus is associating with tax collectors. They were the lowest of the low in that culture. That's how tax collectors were regarded in Palestine of Jesus' day. Then there were the sinners, the people who didn't rigorously follow the Old Testament ceremonial laws and all the extras that have been reduced and or added by the Pharisees and other rabbis. They were the non-religious Jews. They didn't measure up to the expectations of the Jewish religious leaders. The Lord Jesus was hanging out with losers. He welcomed them and then even went up one step further and took the radical step of eating with them. You just don't do that when you're a respectable rabbi. Respectable rabbis associate with respectable religious people who are measuring up and doing everything according to the book. Our Lord Jesus was feasting with sinners. When they come to him, he welcomes them and celebrates. With this parable, he's saying that this is the way of the Father in heaven. Jesus portrays it to them not only with his actions, but also with his teaching. It doesn't matter what they've done. It doesn't matter how long they've been gone. It doesn't matter how much of the pigsty is still sticking to them. The Father rejoices when sinners come to him in repentance and humility. When sinners come looking for his mercy, begging for just small scraps, he goes all out and gives them everything and celebrate. Loved ones, this parable powerfully portrays to us how God receives the penitent and brokenhearted. 
He doesn't turn them away, but receives them in grace. His fatherly heart turns towards them and welcomes them with joy. He gives them the best robe, the ring, the sandals, the fatted calf, and everything. Let there never be any doubt in our minds that God is always gracious and merciful to the repentant. Repenting means turning from sin and turning to God, throwing ourselves on His mercy. It means sorrow for our sin, sorrow for what sin has done to our relationship with God and with others. Repentance means humility and calling out to God, I'm not worthy to be your son. Taking full responsibility for our sin, making no excuses, blaming no one but ourselves. Brothers and sisters, that constantly needs to be our attitude before God. A father's, the God's fatherly heart will always welcome those who have that attitude. Whatever it is that we've done, we can be forgiven and find grace. More than that, through Christ and what he's done for us, we are received in God's family with rejoicing. Your sins are never too much. It's never too late. God's grace is wide enough to include you. You don't, you don't deserve the fatted calf and big party. You deserve the opposite. That's true. But this is about grace, about receiving the opposite of what you deserve. In his grace, God celebrates over us now and gives us the promise of a feast that will never end, a feast that will never wane or lose any of its joy. Our Savior might have left the parable at this point. He could have stopped right there, and a good point would have been made. But there's still that second son, the older one. He was introduced at the beginning, but we haven't heard anything about him yet. He was out in the field. In other words, he was about his father's business with diligence. He came in and heard the music and the dancing. There was a band playing, and it sounded like a big party taking place at his dad's house. There was no party planned. This, some, this was something that had just spontaneously happened. Something must have caused it. So he asked one of the younger servants about it. He gets hold, he gets told rather, about the return of his younger brother and his father's reaction to the safe return. His father reacted to joy, overwhelming joy. It was the best day of his life, but then notice how the older son reacts. He became angry. He fumed. He refused to go into the party, preferring to stay outside and pout. Notice the reversal here. The younger son severed the relationship with his father and went off to a far country. He was an outsider. And now he's back in repentance and humility. He is on the inside with the celebration. The older son had been there all along on the inside, enjoying life in his father's house. But now that the younger son has returned, the older son is on the outside. You could even say that he is the one who is lost at this point outside the family home, outside the family almost. He angrily refuses to participate in the celebration of joy over his younger brother. He wouldn't go in. And when word 
of that reaches the father, the father goes after this lost son. The father takes initiative to try and persuade him to be a different mind. But if this older son was really the obedient son he thinks himself to be, what would he do at this moment? He would say, yes, dad, you're right. I'm way out of line and left field on this one. I repent of my anger and jealousy. But that's not what we hear from him. Instead, we hear a pouty, whiny, resentful answer. He calls attention to his years of slaving for his father. He was a good, solid, law-keeping son. He didn't do that law-keeping with joy or out of love. Slaving has the connotation of begrudging obedience. But the important thing for him is that he did it. He was the obedient son, but not like his loser brother. And what did he get for all his years of keeping it together, trying to measure up to his father? Squat. Nothing. His father didn't even give him a goat for a party with his friends. And then this brother gets the fatted calf. A goat compared to a fatted calf is something like hamburger versus filet mignon. The goat is worth far less. The fatted calf was a creme de la creme of banquet food. But the older brother didn't even get the goat. And then there's the younger brother. He speaks of him with contempt. This son of yours, when he comes after living a wild life with prostitutes, then you reward him with a fatted calf. His words are dripping with disdain. The older son's problem is that it just isn't fair. It's not right. There's no justice in this. If you even take him back, this younger son should be in his room and grounded forever. He doesn't deserve the party. I'm the one who deserves the party. Look at all my obedience and law-keeping. Look at all the ways I've always had my ducks in a row for you. For what? I want justice. I want what is right. I want that son of yours out. He doesn't deserve any of this. Who does the older son picture? In the first place, it's obvious the Pharisees and other religious leaders who begrudge Jesus for eating with the sinners and tax collectors. And there's thinking God would never eat with these losers. Jesus eats with them, therefore obviously he is not God. The Lord Jesus rebukes their false understanding of what God is like, their de-godding of God. They've made or remade God to fit their own ideas. Their God is a God who never shows mercy who only gives parties for the deserving. Their God only has grace for the people who meet him halfway or further. Their God knows nothing about a Redeemer in Jesus Christ. But brothers and sisters, the older brother still lives today. Sometimes he lives among us too. He lives among us when we begin to think about our obedience to God is the hinge on which our salvation turns. The older brother lives among us when we begin to think that our law-keeping is a key to unlocking salvation and eternal life. He lives among us when we begin to think that the salvation is found in the other way by, other way than by humbly coming to God through Jesus Christ. The older brother lives when we look down our noses at people who don't measure up with their behavior, especially with the extra, extra expectations that we are 
have created and imposed on other people. The older brother lives when we are impatient with other believers whom we may perceive to be less mature than ourselves. In short, the older brother lives that whenever we get up on our self-righteous high horse, we can easily see it in the Pharisees, but the older brother syndrome is an ever-present danger in our lives too. The key to combating it is to realize that everything in our salvation from first to last is of grace. The very definition of grace excludes our works. We are rich in Christ and through the gospel, despite what we have done, not because of what we have done. That's what grace is about. Grace is also what we see with the Father in the concluding scene of this parable. The Father's response is gentle and patient. He doesn't give the elder son what he deserves either. He deserved a firm rebuke, but he gets a loving words meant to point him in the right direction. He calls him, my son. He doesn't cast him off. And he says that he has a place in his house and a right to the family inheritance. Even though in his attitude he has sinned, he still belongs. And when it comes to the younger brother, it was necessary to celebrate and to throw a party. That was the right thing to do. This brother had been dead and has come back to life. He was lost and is found. The right thing to do is to have joy and to celebrate at that. The elder brother's failure points us to another elder brother. Christ is the antitype of the older lost brother. He is the elder brother who goes into his father's house and who rejoices over that which is lost. Our Lord Jesus has faithfully followed God's will in this regard too, and we may be assured that his righteousness in this regard is also imputed to us. Loved ones, notice now the fact that the parable really doesn't have a conclusion. Jesus doesn't call us whether or not the elder brother repented and went into the party. There's a missing conclusion. The conclusion is to be supplied by the listeners. Ending like this, the Lord Jesus is putting the question to the Pharisees and religious leaders. Are you going to join the party and rejoice over that which is dead and lost? Are you going to be like your Father in heaven and celebrate grace and mercy? Are you going to follow me? Those same questions are posed to us as well. Will we abandon all our insistence on divine justice, even for repentant lawbreakers? Will we see the log in our own eyes, our own ugly disobedience, and keep on returning to the Father? If you were in the elder's brother's shoes, would you go inside? Would you join the Father and go inside? And when you consider our Lord Jesus, the faithful elder brother, and as you think about your union with him through the Spirit, what does that do to how you answer these questions? Someone once described this parable as a gospel inside the gospel. It's a powerful portrayal of the grace of God for the younger brothers and older brothers. In relation to our perfect Holy Father, we all have dysfunction. We have sinned. We are not worthy to be called his sons, those destined to receive his inheritance. But the gospel promises we have a father who will lavish us 
with the greatest riches imaginable, despite our journeys to the far country. The gospel promises that we have a Father who invites us to celebrate with Him, despite our flirtations with the elder brother syndrome. The gospel promises Savior who is a faithful Son, and His faithfulness is ours. Truly we have a God with a kind, fatherly heart, who is rich and extravagant with all his children. Tim Keller was right to call him the prodigal God. He is our God, your God, and his fatherly heart is inclined towards you too. The gospel promises that. Amen. This has been a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. For more information, please visit us on the web at www.langleycanrc.org.